0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. You guys ready to start this series, yeah. Awakening? No, you ready? You re- Okay, all right. So here's what I want to talk about. All of us have known people with unshakable faith. I don't know if you'd describe it that way, but it's those people that no matter what hits the fan— no matter what life seems to throw at them, no matter what seems to derail other people, it doesn't derail them. And it's not that they're naive or that they ignore reality, but somehow they're just not shook by it in terms of they're able to somehow maintain confidence and hope in God anyway. I think even if you're struggling with faith or you're not sure if you have any or you're starting to lose your faith, and I'll talk to you in just a minute, there's something still that's inspiring about that or admirable about that, right? Right? Um, I use this example a lot, but it's the closest example I've been able to be a part of. But watching my mom and dad walk through several tragedies and still walk through it without their faith being lost. The first was when my brother passed away unexpectedly. Uh, When I was 17, he was 27. And watching my parents navigate what nobody can imagine, you know, unless you've gone through it, which is losing your firstborn. And I remember my dad being interviewed by different news outlets and, and him being like real about the pain and the heartbreak, but in all of those, still expressing unwavering confidence and trust in God anyway. And I, I saw the same thing when. My mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2014, and um, early on, I would have conversations with my parents constantly. And they it sucked and they hated it, and they were grappling with all the emotions that you can only imagine that you would feel. And yet, in the midst of that, I would have these conversations, and they would just remind me over and over again that we believe that God loves us and is with us and is for us. And ultimately, we would never choose this, but we do not doubt the hand the providence, the grace of God, and he will see us through this. And over and over again, my dad would say, listen, like, why wouldn't I suffer? Why would I be any different than anybody else? And I watched them walk all the way through that journey. My mom going to heaven in end of 2019 with with unwavering faith and confidence in God. And you look at that from the outside and like there is something inspiring, there's something awe-inspiring about it to go, like how do you walk through things like that believing that there is more than just this moment, there's more than just this life, and that even in circumstances where everything is flying off the rails to maintain this reality that God loves me, that God's for me, that God's with me, and that somehow he's going to see me through Like, here's really what I would say about that. It it is amazing faith. And here's the thing that's that's awe-inspiring that we're captured by that maybe you've never thought of. You're generally not that moved by people's obedience. You're not even that moved by people's knowledge. The thing that captures your imagination is faith. That's the thing that moves the needle. That's the thing that moves you and I. And so the questions that I wanna answer in this series is, where's that come from, how you get that? Like where, where do you get that kind of faith? And here's what I'd say as we talk about this like big word awakening, that if you're in a place right now where you feel like you're losing faith a little bit, you feel like you've maybe lost faith already and you're coming because you're appeasing somebody else or like your husband or wife won't get off your back or whatever, like, but you're here or you're watching somehow, then this series really is for you because it may answer some of the questions of why you're tempted to walk away or why you've already walked away. But the series really is, if you're looking to recapture faith, if you're looking to somehow rediscover faith, if you're looking, and this is as important, to deepen and strengthen your faith, or maybe you feel like you're losing your faith, this series is for you. You're who I want to talk to, which is pretty much everybody in this room and everybody that's listening and watching all over the place. But here's the thing, as as I set this up, here's what you'll discover about Jesus in the Gospels, which is like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, story of Jesus' life. The story of Jesus' ministry, the thing that you will find that maybe you've never discovered is that Jesus was only amazed two different times. And one was positive and one was negative. But what you find capturing the imagination and heart of Jesus appears two different times in the New Testament. And it gives us incredible insight in terms of our journey with Jesus. The first time Jesus was with his guys, with his disciples, and he was with his disciples and a Roman centurion comes to him which like right off the bat right there, I know that you don't really get the tensions maybe the first century. All Jesus' disciples were like, why do you even have the nerve to talk to Jesus Like, you're a Roman centurion. You are all about the enemy. We do not associate with Romans. Um, You guys are oppressive. You guys are an enemy to our religion. You're an enemy to our way of life. They're thinking Jesus is coming to set up a political kingdom. So they're like, any day now we're gonna overthrow you and Jesus is gonna set up his political reigning kingdom on earth. And come on, you have the nerve to approach and talk to Jesus, And so the Roman centurion approaches Jesus and he doesn't stop there. He says to him, hey, I've got a servant at home and he's sick and he's about to die. He is, eventually he is dead and I I need you to come and heal him. And again, Jesus' disciples are like, are you serious? Like it's enough that you would have the nerve to talk to Jesus. Now you are asking Jesus for a favor. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know that we don't associate with you? And then Jesus does the most offensive thing. He's like, Shh, shut up, guys. And then he looks at the Roman centurion. You won't find that verse, but it's implied. He turns to the Roman centurion and says, hey, you just tell me the way home and I'll follow you and I'll heal your servant. And then I love the response. It's so amazing. The Roman centurion basically looks at Jesus and says, no, 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 I, I've, I've been watching you. I have a little bit, an idea of who you are You don't even need to do this. I kind of know how this works. And Matthew records it, Matthew 8, 9. Here's what the centurion says. For I myself am a man under authority, and I've got soldiers underneath me. And here's basically what the Romans and Sheeran is saying. He's, listen, I've been watching you, Jesus. I've watched the miracles. I've heard the news headlines. I know what you've done. And I know at least at some level who you are. You are somebody that represents somebody else or something else that's bigger than you. Because otherwise you could not do the things that you do. You are not of this world. You are not like us. And so I'm understanding that you are representing something bigger. And in some ways, the Roman centurion would say, I relate to that because I represent Rome. And when I issue a command, people listen to my command, not because of me, but because of who I represent. And Jesus, I'm understanding. You're representing somebody. And so you don't even have to go to my house. Just do what I do. When I issue a command, people do it. And if you would just issue a command, Jesus, I've seen enough from you to know, it'll just happen. And it'll be done. And so he says this, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, this is so important, Jesus was what? Jesus was amazed. Now, here's the thing, like, by what? Because Jesus had just healed a leper right before this, and Jesus wasn't amazed at that. Jesus was healing people all the time. This is pretty much a regular day. Like what was it that amazed and captured Jesus' imagination and heart? And he tells us in verse 10, truly I tell you, and this was so offensive to his disciples and to Jewish people. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And they're like, what are you talking about? This Roman knows no theology. This dude did not grow up studying the Torah. He's a Roman And you're talking about this guy has more faith than all of us, that's ridiculous, that's offensive. And Jesus is setting the table right here and this honestly, and and we'll talk about it throughout the series, it goes up against what many of us had handed to us in regard to what does it look like to journey with Jesus and what is Jesus most after in terms of our life. But right here, Jesus is setting the table that he is amazed, he is moved by confident, bold, out of this box, intellectually informed in spite of faith. If you want to know what God's after in your life, if you want to know where God wants to get you, if you want to know what God wants to reclaim in your life, that's it. And here's the thing that was amazing about this guy is the centurion started to put two and two together. And he's like, there's something about you, man. There's something bigger about your life. I know that you're not some mere man or mere mortal. And the moment this centurion began to recognize this, this is huge. He went all in. He's like, there's no neutral ground here. I know that you represent somebody. You don't even need to go to my home. You issue the command, it's gonna be done. I'm all in. Yeah. Now here's the thing, and this, this maybe plays against What you were handed in Sunday school, if you grew up in that, more and more, many of you are post-Christian, so you don't even have any of that background, but maybe what you were um, told or taught or seen modeled by other Christians or followers of Jesus. Here's the thing that's a little bit interesting, is look all throughout the New Testament, Jesus was never amazed by anybody's obedience. Jesus was never amazed at anybody's knowledge, didn't even register on the radar, like good for you. You memorized the whole Torah, amazing. You're like whitewashed tombs, which is what he said to the Pharisees. Because it is possible to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of obedience with very little faith. The thing that God, has, those are those are means to an end. Those are outflows. They're not the goal. It is possible to have obedience and to have knowledge and actually be far from God in regard to a relationship. So the thing that moved Jesus more than anything else was an expression of faith and expression of trust. Like the second incident that captured Jesus' imagination was on the negative side. Jesus was in his hometown, excuse me, teaching, and he was healing and healing. I mean, honestly, like, how do you not get amazed by those miracles? He's healing blind people. He's causing, you know, those who can't walk to be able to walk. And everybody in his hometown are like, that's incredible. You are amazing. Like, he's a hero for a moment. And then everything kind of switches, and they become very jealous of Jesus. Now, just real quick, this is just a total side note, but somebody needs to hear it. Sometimes the people who are most familiar with you are the people that will have most most of the issues in recognizing God's work and what God is doing in your life. Do not let anybody define who you were and overshadow who God has made you and who you are in this moment. Nobody gets to define you other than the one who manufactured you and is working in you. And sometimes he's doing things in you that are far ahead of what people are familiar with from your past, yeah? So that's kind of where Jesus is at. And in Mark 6, 3, he records it. Like after all of the commotion of the miracles, they're like, isn't this the carpenter? Have you ever thought about this? Side note, I've said it before, but it, none of Jesus' carpentry work survived. For a sec- <laughs> like it was the, the Galilean equivalent to Ikea furniture. We don't even know if he was good. Like, yes, he was God, but was he a good carpenter? We don't know. Isn't this a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Like, aren't his sisters here with us? Like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, hey, dude's not that special. We grew up with him. We know, we know who his parents are. We know who his siblings are. He makes furniture for a living. Honestly, first 30 years of his life, he didn't accomplish much. And then verse six, this is Jesus' response. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. The, the only other time in the Greek, astonished by their lack of faith. There's only two things that Jesus is astonished, amazed, capture his, captures his attention on the positive and negative side. It is great faith and it's lack of faith. Everything else is secondary. The thing that Jesus wanted to work and, and play into his first century readers and 21st century followers is active, it doesn't matter what happens, it doesn't matter what is done, it doesn't matter that I can't interpret the circumstances, but active, bold, in spite of faith. And here's where we get confused though, and I don't even have time, this is a whole other series, but this is where we get confused because faith, unlike hope and unlike optimism, always has an object, Faith, go with me for a second because this is really important. Faith has an object. uh, Let's see, a week ago, we got on a plane, my wife and I, to meet some people in Atlanta for some work stuff, and we're getting on the plane. We're about halfway through, and, like, every time I get on the plane, Nicole's a little nervous. I'm always, like, it's good. I'm, you know, I have optimism. I have hope. Halfway through this flight, the loudest alarm that I've ever heard in my life starts going off. Like, I won't do it, but I just did. But it was, like, that but louder, Uh, And you know how everybody does on the plane, like, everybody's trying to act chill, but you can tell that nobody's chill, like, you know, their head's, like, on a swivel, and their like, eyes are massive, and they're, like, looking around, like, should we panic? Is anybody else panicking? And, uh, like, you just do not want to hear an alarm on a plane ever, I don't care what it is. And nobody seemed to be doing anything, and so I'm, like, I don't, I don't know, so I just chose to put my Bose headphones back on and listen to a podcast, because, like, What am I gonna do? I've got a seatbelt on, which is kind of a joke because if we're going down, I'm dead. Seatbelt's not gonna help me. Like, we just need to ride this thing out. But generally, like I have faith and I have optimism, but here's where kind of the dynamic comes in. That my faith and my optimism are not the thing that, or my hope and my optimism, I should say, is not what I'm placing my faith in. When I get onto a plane, I'm placing my faith in the integrity of the aircraft and I'm placing my faith in hopefully the good judgment of the pilot's. And none of those things, my hope and optimism is not unfounded, but it is not the basis of my faith. That's the basis of my faith. Faith always has to have an object. Optimism and hope are an outflow. They are not the object of your faith. For 20 years, we had hope and optimism that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were gonna make the playoffs. We sucked every single year. Our hope and our optimism was unfounded. Anybody with me in the room? And then now today, we're gonna to beat down the saints in New Orleans, so things can change quickly. But here's my point. The object of faith, listen to me, is not a particular outcome. Like, The the object of faith is not everything's going to work out. Hey, let's just be real, man. I know a lot of preachers can get up, strap a mic on their face, and promise you something different. The reality of life just says the opposite it doesn't always work out. Every prayer is not answered. It doesn't end the way you want. A uh, bow is not tied onto it like the end of a Hallmark movie. Like, stuff sometimes hits the rails. Stuff sometimes flies out of control. Sometimes it does not get better. Sometimes God does not answer your prayer. Sometimes you cannot figure out why He would allow something to happen. That is not the object of your faith. Jesus was amazed, not at the centurion's hope and optimism, Jesus was amazed. His incredible faith—that somehow this guy knows and loves—and I don't know if he will, but I don't know if he will. But he has the power to intervene on my on my behalf if he decides to. See, here's the thing: the point of Jesus' entire ministry was to establish Himself as the object of faith. The object of faith in regard to what we're talking about in journey of Jesus and the movement of Jesus is Jesus. It's why Jesus over and over again invited his followers, hey, I want you to believe in me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to follow me. In fact, on the night of Jesus' arrest, he had this uh, honestly confusing, strange, somewhat absurd to his disciples' conversation. It went really long. They weren't really tracking with him. Jesus was making predictions about how it was gonna end, and they were not having any of it. Like, no, I can't end that way for the Messiah. And then Jesus says this, and John records it because John was there, it was so powerful. John 14:1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Basically, I'm telling you where this is gonna go, but you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry. You don't need to doubt my plan, what I'm doing and the fact that I will be with you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. This This is a statement. And this is so interesting. This is the first time because there was no Greek word for trust in. He's not talking about believe in in terms of you just believe there's a God. This is the first time where basically John makes up a word in Greek and he takes basically the preposition um, epsilon knew and combines it with believe and basically makes this word trust in. You guys trust in God. You guys have seen me. You guys have watched what I've been able to do. So I want you to trust in God and believe also in me. I want to be the object of your faith, not your circumstances not the outcome, not that everything works out great, not that you've worked out great. I want to be the object in your faith. I want you to trust me like you trust God. And here's the reason that Jesus said this. This is the reason that Jesus came to show us what God is like. And he had to do that because everybody had assumptions about God. You have assumptions about God. Many of your assumptions are wrong. Many of their assumptions were wrong because what we see a lot of times What's portrayed for us, what's modeled, and what intuitively we come up with is many times at at odds with who God actually is. And so God shows up to go, listen, most of your assumptions about me are wrong. And one of the reasons that I've come is actually to correct your incorrect assumptions. And I'm just telling you, many of us, many of you are in that place right now because you have a bunch of assumptions about God that you picked up from other people that you saw modeled for other people that has been communicated by other people. And your assumptions about who God is are wrong. And so Jesus says, this is the reason that I've come. And then what he says is so offensive because he he tells all of his, his followers and all of those who might be interested in him, hey, if you wanna know who God is, watch me. If you wanna know what God's like, listen to me. If you wanna know how God acts, God responds, God moves in the hearts and the lives of people. I want you to watch me. I want you to model what I do. I want you to follow me. Everything that you need to know about God is wrapped up in me. There could not have been a more offensive statement by Jesus. Basically, everything else is wrong, you're wrong, and everything you wanna know about God is in me. So follow me. It's why one of the best questions you get asked as you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is just this. What can you learn from God by watching Jesus? What can you learn from God by observing Jesus? What, what can you see about God from observing the interactions and the statements and the teachings of Jesus all throughout the New Testament? I mean, John 9 is a perfect example. One day, again, Jesus is walking through the city and he comes up on this blind man. And this, is, this shows you how deeply rooted wrong assumptions were in people. And they didn't even know it. They had wrong theology they're running around with. And they just assumed they're right. So uh, Jesus' followers come up on this blind man. And here's their question. There was no in between. There was no like five, you know, options here. There's just two options. They come up on the blind man and they ask Jesus, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Because that's the only options. We know that bad things happen to people who go off the rails behaviorally. And so we just want to know, did this guy sin? And if you could tell us what it was, that would be nice too. Or did his parents sin? We just want to know. And Jesus looks at these guys to go, listen, that's not how it works. That is not what God is like. And all of your vantage points about how I interact and respond to people, I hate to tell you, it's wrong. You don't know God, so you need to get to know me, Jesus would say. Another time he's teaching and everybody again is gathered around and Jesus starts into this whole message of I want you to love your neighbor and I want you to love your neighbor the way I love you and eventually I'm going to punctuate how much I love you and I'm going to set the standard way up here. But this is going to be the marching orders for followers of Jesus to love their neighbor. And so all the people listening to Jesus are like, okay, so define this for us. Number one, we know these are Judean neighbors because we don't love people outside of the Judeans. God hates them, and so do we. This was their common first century thinking. Like, just, this is everybody agreed on this who was Jewish. So which of our Judean neighbors should we love? Because it can't be everybody. So we, like, we need you to define it and clarify it for us. And then Jesus responds with the most epic story that you could imagine. And he reaches into the people group that they hated the most, And he takes out a Samaritan and makes the Samaritan the hero of the story so that from that moment forward, every time that you would hear the word Samaritan, the descriptor good would be attached to it. So that Jesus could make a very specific point through a very racially charged story. God does not have favorites. And in this moment, Jesus redefined who their neighbor was because nobody understood God. And basically, here's what he said Your neighbor is anybody who has a need and you can help. And it's not even physical, it's physical, it's emotional. It's spiritual, it's a need for empathy and kindness and forgiveness and not to return their behavior the way they deserve their behavior to be returned to them. And your neighbor, no matter what they look like, no matter what their skin color is, no matter what their political affiliation is, no matter how many times they ignore HOA rules, they are your neighbor and if they have a need, you need to come to their aid. And in Matthew 5, 43, here's how Jesus said it. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I looked at this last series, so I won't dig down on this, but there was a common idiom. Like, we just hate our enemies. That's what everybody does. So like, that's God's way. That's what King David did. Why should we do any different? And besides, what's alternative, Jesus? So Jesus says this, verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because you have no idea. Paul will write it later. But while you were at your worst... While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. I want you to pray for your enemies and those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. If you want to be like your father in heaven, you need to love your enemies because your father in heaven loves your enemies. And they, in that moment, he completely redefines who God is, what God is about, and what God's agenda is on planet Earth. And it's why he showed up so that people could see and accept the object of their faith, which was just Jesus. If you wanna know how you can get confidence in God, if you wanna know how you can move to a place where circumstances and unanswered prayers do not derail you, the only thing that is gonna get you there is by looking at Jesus as the object and epicenter of your faith. And so Jesus does this whole talk, I love your, your neighbor and, and pray for your enemy, and they're like, okay, so, so wait, 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 this is not, so God likes everybody? Like, that's new news. That's kind of crazy. Nobody thinks that way. And Jesus replies with proof in verse 45. He causes talking about God, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, meaning God extends his grace to everyone. And so Jesus looks eyeball to eyeball with all those people in the crowd and says, I love you. Everything you thought about God was wrong. I'm here. I want you to look at me. I want you to follow me I want you to observe me. My invitation is that you would trust in me and ultimately trust in God as he actually is because you have a whole lot of wrong assumptions. It's why this is not original with me, but I just wanna say it to so many of us. And I say this not just to the person maybe who's losing faith. I say this to the person who's had faith in Jesus for 40 years. It's just as relevant to you. If you want to get to re-know Jesus or maybe rediscover Jesus or investigate Jesus or just deepen your faith in Jesus, do not start in Genesis. Start with Jesus. He is not a chapter in the story. He is not a part of the story. He is not an addendum to the story. He is the story from Genesis to Revelation. It points to him. It describes him. It moves everything toward him. And the the Apostle Paul understood this better than anybody. We've talked about him so much but he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament where he's like, listen, I was a part of what he would describe as a Nazarene sect. I tried to end Christianity in the Jesus movement. Then I became a Jesus follower. And Paul knew better than anybody this whole tension of the old pagan religions the old testament jewish religion and this brand new movement of jesus and here's what he describes when he writes a letter to the colossian church in the first century and basically he's summarizing all the traditions of the world religions maybe all the religion that you grew up with the old testament jewish religion that they had all grown up with and he says this and this is so powerful All of these things, Colossians 2.17, were a shadow of what's to come. They were a shadow of what was to come. And listen, you can learn a lot about a thing from a shadow, but you cannot learn everything. And basically what Jesus is saying in this moment through the writing of Paul is the shadow caster is here. In every religion that was like, here's how you get to God. How do we get to God? How do we get in the good graces graces of God? How do we make our way to God? How do we do enough to be okay with God? How do we appease our conscience of shame and guilt in order to have a relationship with God? All of that was the shadow to let you know that you have a need for a savior, but now the shadow caster, caster is here. And all of that Old Testament Jewish religion, it was not incorrect. It was just incomplete. And now, Jesus is here. And what was so valuable as a cocoon that would birth the Savior and Messiah of the world now is incomplete. Now it is less valuable because the shadow is not as valuable as the shadow caster. And so at the end of the verse, he says, the reality, however, is found in Christ. And I don't know if you know how amazing that statement is. That's an amazing statement. If you wanna know why one of our core values, our first one on a list is Jesus is our lead story because he is the reality of everything that God wants to communicate to humanity. And all of these guys had grown up with the shadow, this religion 101, and they had done their best, best to piece together what God was like. And finally, Jesus shows up to go, okay, I have a whole bunch to explain to you guys. And you guys have a whole lot that you have to unlearn or deconstruct, and you need to follow me because Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father, God the Father in heaven. It's as if Jesus was saying, listen, I'm simply a shadow, or the shadow was religion, and I'm a sign pointing ultimately to God the Father in heaven so that you could not know more about God so that you could have a relationship with God. And all of it is found in Jesus, and so, it shouldn't surprise us that over and over again, Jesus' sole focus was my goal for you, my goal for you, my agenda for you, my desire for you is I want you to move to a place where you have bold, powerful, in spite of, intellectually informed, out of this box faith and trust in me above everything else. Yeah. My primary agenda is not even your obedience. My agenda is not fear. My agenda is trust. Come on, you all know this. The currency of any relationship is trust. Your marriage is only as good as its trust. Your corporate environment is only as good as the level of trust in that environment. Your church is only as good as the level of trust. Any relationship, my kids could obey me all day long. It doesn't necessarily mean they even like me obedience is not the end goal despite what you grew up with and despite what was told to you because there were a bunch of Sunday school kids that obeyed everything and then lost their faith at 25 because obedience was never the goal. Faith and trust in your heavenly father through Jesus is the goal. And so Jesus says, I want you to follow me. My goal for every first century and 21st century follower of Jesus is that we would reinitiate trust because the thing that broke in the garden of Eden was trust. There was a break in creation-creator relationship. And now I wanna restore that. And Jesus would say, I want to be the object of your faith. I want you to look to me. And Jesus said to his first century followers, so that when I leave, and things get bad, and it flies off the rails, and some of you get arrested, and shipwrecked, and bitten by snakes, and falsely accused, and crucified upside down, I know it's gonna be extreme, you will know who I am, you will know how I work, and you will have confidence in me as your savior, because you've watched me, and you trust me, and it's why God came. God so loved the world that he wanted you to know what God was like. So he revealed himself through Jesus. It's incredibly difficult to have a relationship with a shadow. And for many of you, you've formulated your religious journey by looking at a shadow rather than the reality. And in that kind of scenario, you never know where you stand with God. And so Jesus says to you as somebody who walked away from faith or somebody that has followed Jesus for 30 years, this same invitation applies. I'm inviting you to trust me. And as a result, to grow in your relationship with your heavenly father. That's what you'll discover all throughout the gospels. Personal experience, it's maybe your story. And it's the story of people that you've met that have in spite of, it's almost borderline absurd. How do you maintain that kind of confidence in God? But you will find this in every single one of those scenarios. It's the thing that inspires you. It's the thing that moved God himself. It is living, active, death-defying in spite of trust in him. That, I just want you to know, that is how spiritual maturity is measured. All of your other barometers need to go out the window. Those things are things that happen as a result of the goal that God wants for your life is active faith and trust so that you could get to the place in your journey where you'd be able to say, what would somebody do who is me that was absolutely confident that God was with them? What would somebody do who's losing their marriage, but they're still confident that God was with them? What would somebody do who is me that just got wronged at work, and now I'm paying the price, and I have every reason in the world to retaliate, but what would somebody do who is me in that situation, but they are absolutely confident that God was with them? What would somebody do who is me, who's 17 and doesn't know where to go with their future and already has racked up some past from the last 18 months and I feel distant, I feel like God doesn't love me, but I come to the place to realize, no, I am absolutely confident that God is with me. What would somebody do who is you who's struggling with parenting, but they're confident that God was with them? What would somebody do who is you, who feels alone, you wanna be married, you're struggling with singleness, but you are absolutely confident that God is with you? That's what God desires to initiate in your life. And when you see that kind of faith, you are moved by that kind of faith. But I just wanna tell you, you will never get there, and this is my whole point, until you recognize that the object of your faith, the faith that we're talking about, is Jesus. It's the only way you will find yourself in that place. And for so many of you, you've been distracted by a hundred other things and you've lost sight of Jesus. So for the next five weeks after today, I wanna deal with what you could call maybe five faith catalysts. But there's these things that you find that show up in everybody who has active, bold in spite of faith. There's an incredible book, in fact, written around it called Deep and Wide that talks about some of these. And I'm gonna kind of give my spin on it. But these five faith catalysts that show up differently in every season, because I know that you know this, but active faith looks different in different seasons of your life, doesn't it? So these things I'm gonna talk about for the next five weeks, they're the things that when you position yourself for this, you give God the opportunity to work in an extraordinary, extraordinary way because it's different for all of us. What are the obstacles to middle school faith? That's a question that I ask myself all the time. What, what are things that high school students are dealing with that have the potential to derail their faith in Jesus? What does it look like in marriage? And what are some of the things that maybe sometimes can distract you or work against your faith? What are some of the obstacles to faith when you're trying to raise kids or you can't have kids? Like How, how do you maintain confidence and trust in God when you're losing a marriage or losing a kid? How, how does that happen? How, how do you maintain trust? When you've been so embarrassed and hurt by other followers of Jesus to the point you're not even sure you want anything to do with this, how do you keep moving forward to trust Jesus, the epicenter, the foundation, and the object of your faith? Where do you get that? How do you maintain that? So for the next five weeks, that's what we're gonna look look at, and it's important in every season. And I just wanna end with this because I wanna encourage some of you because we are all over the map. Atheists, agnostics, 30-year followers of Jesus are all housed in this place and online every single weekend. So I just wanna say this to you. If you've begun to lose faith, this series at some level might begin to explain why for you. And for others of you, and I'm believing this, it might begin the journey or be the catalyst to give you handles to come back. And can I just encourage you with this? Because maybe a pastor has never told you this before. Everybody's faith hits a bump at some point. Everybody struggles. And I just wanna encourage you with this, and this may not be your story, so if it's not, just don't worry about it. But I've almost never met a person who walked away from faith that had something to do with Jesus. Can I be really vulnerable? There was points over the last year and a half and what I've seen happen with the greater body of Christ and the church and evangelicalism, that if I wasn't tethered to Jesus, I, I can see the temptation of some people to be so disillusioned where they would just go, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. And the only thing that got me through that, and sometimes I'm just being really honest. You don't have to agree with my story. It's my story of, of almost being embarrassed by other people that would label themselves followers of Jesus and Christians. The only thing that got me through that was my anchor. My anchor the object of my faith, which is not the church, it's not the other Christians, it's not evangelicalism, it's not these movements that we make that we wanna slap Jesus' name on, it is Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And so for some of you, I just wanna encourage you in this journey of either trying to strengthen your faith, it's not that you don't believe it, you just need strengthened. For others of you to regain, recapture the, your faith, Just knowing you're not alone helps. And here's one of the things that helps me is that knowing that just about every single one of Jesus' initial followers at some point lost faith. You are not alone. And so next week, we're gonna begin to talk about these five catalysts of how do you rediscover, reclaim, strengthen your faith. Do not miss next week. Do not miss the opportunity to invite somebody to care enough to have 30 seconds of courage because here's what I'll promise you. You know a bunch of people around you who are there right now, who have been there, that are walking through the same stuff and they're looking for answers. And this is your opportunity to be salt and light where God's placed you. Invite somebody to come with you and watch what God does through this series to awaken, to grow, and for some of you, to recapture your faith in Jesus. Would you guys stand with me? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you're doing in this moment. And I pray that you would take us on a journey these next few weeks where you would do something in our heart to, in some cases, strengthen, to bolster, and to other cases, to reignite. And I know some people are walking through some circumstances right now, grappling with unanswered prayers where it's been difficult to maintain confidence and trust in you. And so I'm praying for them specifically. I pray that they would feel what they're walking through. They would not ignore it. They would not be naive. But you would move them to the place to affirm what is all throughout the gospels and all throughout the New Testament is that even in the midst of circumstances, we cannot understand. You know, you are with us, you are good and we are not trusting in the outcome or our ability to understand what you are doing. We are trusting in you, Jesus, as the object of our faith, our confidence, our hope. And we pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus, amen.